You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, today is uh, Tuesday, August 17th, 2021. I'm here with my good colleague, uh, Jordan Lofthouse. Uh, Dr. Lofthouse uh, is a senior fellow in our Hayek program, um, as well as uh, deeply engaged in academic and student programming. And Jordan, thanks for taking time out to talk to me today. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to be here. All right. So let's just jump in. I wanted to uh, get some origin story of Jordan Lofthouse. Uh, so, you know, uh, this is sort of like, uh, how did Batman become Batman? How did Jordan become Jordan? So, uh, you know, you work with the folks at Utah State before coming to GMU. Um, I have a question about whether or not you went to college with an aspiration to study economics or social theory in general, um, or was it something that you got exposed to while you were in school that led you to, to further study, and how did that all come about? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Idaho, but I went to Utah State, and I did not start up in economics. Um, when I was first trying to pick a major when I was a freshman, there at Utah State, uh, had a lot of misconceptions about economics. And so I thought it was boring. It was on my list of three things to not do. <laughs> so I was yeah. like, uh, yeah, that, that's not for me. Um, so I ended up choosing geography for my major. Um, I loved studying geography. I thought it was fascinating. Um, but I didn't really have a long-term plan for a future career. So I never took any economics classes when I was an undergrad, um, but I did take several political science classes. And that's when I got kind of curious about, you know, the study of political things. So my real gateway into political economy was when I was a junior in college, I did an internship here in DC um, with the House of Representatives. And so during that internship, um, I mean, it lasted about six months and I'd always been curious about public policy and I really wanted to see what it looked like from the inside. Cause of course, you know, I watched the news and it's fascinating, but you only get so much from watching the news. So I really wanted to see what it looked like from the inside. And um, I mean, my internship was this huge transformative experience cause I really got to see how the sausage was made. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. to be honest, I came, came away from the internship pretty disillusioned with politics mainly because I saw that the people I worked with, I worked in a pretty small office. It was actually my um, home office, like the, the legislative district I grew up in. So I actually, saw, like I was in charge of like helping to send out letters. So I would send out letters to people I actually knew. It was kind yeah. of funny, but um, all the people I worked with there on the Hill, they were kind, they were well-meaning, they were all super intelligent, well-educated, but I would see things that kind of the political process ended up producing these weird outcomes that I thought were either nonsensical or unjust or problematic in some yeah. other way. So with that disillusion, after coming back, right after that internship, I had a friend that I made on the internship and he introduced me to public choice. 
And so um, he's like, oh, you should read this paper by a guy named James Buchanan. It's called Politics Without Romance. And I read this and it was like this huge light bulb moment. It was kind of like a, I don't know, almost like a religious epiphany. Right. Like, it's like, oh, what Buchanan is saying in this paper is exactly what I just saw for the past six months. And so from there, I got really into kind of studying political economy. Um, so, I mean, my first foray into the political economy world was public choice. Um, but from there, um, I started working with Dr. Randy Simmons at Utah State. Right. Yeah, I was and just so, going to say you were very lucky because once you get that, you had people at Utah State that not only knew about that stuff, but had contributed to that literature. You know, yeah, and I, yeah. I actually had no idea how like big and important and influential these people were in the world of public choice. So I started working with Randy Simmons kind of on some public policy analysis pieces. Right. Um, and so that led me to kind of dabbling more into not only public choice, but a little bit of Austrian and Bloomington stuff. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Randy offered me the opportunity to get a master's degree in economics. And uh, all I can say is starting that master's program is a very steep learning curve because never before in my life had I taken an economics class. And one of my very first classes, I was sitting with a good friend and we were in that master's class together and Bill Shugart was teaching and he drew this kind of X thing on the board and he was talking about <laughs> something and I lean over to my friend and it's like uh what is that and she's like the supply and demand graph and I was like what is that <laughs> and yeah. so that's I was really starting from square one um yeah. but I did a lot of reading I had great mentors great friends and so made it through the master's program um but actually during the second year of my master's program I did the Frederick Bastiat fellowship with Mercatus and so that was really, I mean, the transformative experience for me. Because um, even though my master's program was great, the two-year <laughs> program, I was working with Randy, I was working with Bill Shugart. Um, in just like five weekend seminars of the Bastiat Fellowship, I learned more useful, practical, interesting information. And so uh, my idea was, if every day can be the Bastiat Fellowship, then the PhD at GMU is for me. So. Yeah. Can I have a quick question about that? I, I have a question I want to go back to to ask you about, but just as a follow-up to that, was it the conversation, the readings, or some interaction effect between those? I mean, what was it about the Bastiat Fellowship that, that um, you know, so excited your imagination? Yeah, so I had worked with, or sorry, I had, you know, interacted with, Stephanie Hafley, Jamie Lemke, Chris Coyne in the Bastiat Fellowship. And they were just incredible people to talk to. Right. The topics we talked about, I initially started off in kind of policy oriented things. So the Bastiat Fellowship helped me kind of think bigger picture. Right. Like, yeah, policy is cool and interesting to me, but to really get into public policy, you have to understand kind of the academic underpinnings. And I mm -hmm. think the Bastiat Fellowship helped me get into that too. The readings were incredible, a deeper dive into a lot of public choice, Austrian and Bloomington things that I hadn't been exposed to. So I think it was a combination of all those things that gave me such a good experience from that fellowship. Now, Jamie was at Utah State overlap with you when she was a faculty member there too, right? Yes, I did take one class with Jamie, um, but unfortunately that class was an online class, so I didn't get a lot of FaceTime with her. Uh -oh. So interestingly enough, <laughs> I got more FaceTime with her later. Yeah, that's yeah. All right, I want to go back. I, I want to go forward. There's so many 
things that I want to ask you about your work and everything, but I, I, I am obsessed with this idea of young, curious intellectuals like yourself being turned off to economics a priori. Mm -hmm. And so I want to try to go back to the 17 year old Jordan, right? And ask you, what is it in your mind that made you think that economics would be boring because, or not helpful? Because I think economics is taught wrong in so many ways, in, in high, especially in the introduction of the discipline. Um, and I'm trying to constantly find that because to me, I think economics should be the subject that someone who's curious and compassionate should be drawn to more than any other subject. I mean, I'm, I'm an economic, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, I, I think economics is, is should dominate over all the other intellectual disciplines in the social sciences for the curious and for the compassionate. But yet so many people don't see it that way. And so I can't figure out why there's this disjoint between myself and others. Um, and that's been true since I was an undergraduate myself. So what was it that you thought economics was boring about? Yeah, I guess I just had this preconceived notion that it was math, stats, and like stocks and bonds. <laughs> like, right. Bankers. And so I was like, that to me isn't interesting. The thing that was interesting to me about geography, which is why I initially was a geography major as an undergrad, is I am curious about the world and the people in it and why they do what they do. Right. And I think I had, I mean, that was fascinating, but at least in my experience, geography ended up being a very fascinating but descriptive science, whereas I didn't realize the analytical heft that economics has so now the things that I study and research are the same topics that I was interested in when I was a geography major now I just have this huge analytical toolkit from economics to actually analyze and dissect all of these topics that I care about so I guess I didn't realize at the time when I was a lot younger that economics is so widely applicable to everything else it's not just math and stats it's not just stocks and bonds I mean, that's part of it obviously but there's so much more well the reality is, is that you could have been in a lot of different places and taken an economics course and nothing would have disabused you of that <laughs> you know, uh, idea. So you were in a fortunate place with people that saw economics in a more universal applicability aspect and, and this other idea. Anyway, let's, let's move on to your work. So in your dissertation, um, which is an intersection of economic development, political economy, and cultural economy, I would like to see you explain how it is that you see the relationship between these fields first in the abstract, like how do you intellectually fit the pieces together, but then also how about concrete illustrations from your work on Native American lands? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the relationship between economic development, political economy, and cultural economy, really to me, you have to go back to the foundations of Adam Smith. I mean, his big question of why are some countries rich and some countries poor, you know, and otherwise what causes the wealth of nations? I mean, that's kind of the root question. I know Pete, you've talked about this a lot is that's kind of the foundation of everything in economics. And then from there we can, you know, branch off, but I don't think we can really separate economic development, political economy and cultural economy because they're so deeply interconnected. So you really have to look at all three kind of at once. And yeah, I'll try to simply outline how I, 
think about it. Um, I start off first by thinking of institutions as, you know, the formal and informal rules of the game that everyone lives by. And institutions are those funda or they're, it's fundamental to economic development uh, because you have certain institutions that are really good at, you know, helping people dig themselves out of poverty. And you have other certain institutions that are basically huge barriers to allowing people to do what they need to do to make their lives better. And so first you have to look at the kind of the incentives and constraints, kind of that cold, hard economic side, the incentive and constraints of what institutions do. But then you really have to start thinking about that entre entrepreneurial market process that's embedded within institutions in both the private and public spheres. And so obviously people in the market and government are constantly reacting to changing circumstances. And so we need those entrepreneurs and innovators to really start, uh, you know, discovering, being alert to those opportunities that actually make people's lives better by providing those goods and services that people need. And so when you combine the entrepreneurial process with kind of a cold, hard look at institutions, we can really see why, start to see why some places are doing well and some places aren't doing well. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the we can think of certain institutional structures where people are guided to be either wealth creating or wealth destroying. And so obviously, if you have institutions that are guiding people in wealth destroying paths, they're going to be worse off. Um, and then bringing that cultural element, inst institutions and entrepreneurship don't just happen in a vacuum. They happen with real people who have different understandings about how the world works. And so I guess in kind of the tradition that I'm working in and you work in and virtual store and other people that we work with are working in is culture as that socially shared context or mental framework about how people view the world, how they're ascribing meaning to the world, um, how they give meaning to their purposeful action. And so um, kind of that's the framework that I went yeah. into my study of Native American stuff with. So can you give some illustrations from that work on the Native American lands and land management and, and whatnot? Yeah, so I guess maybe to give a little bit of a background in why I got interested in Native American issues in the first place, where I grew up in Idaho, I grew up pretty close to a Native American reservation. So I knew they were a thing. I knew they existed. I knew they were a little bit different than, you know, where I lived. And then during my undergrad, one of my favorite professors is a Native American person, and I was his research assistant. So I started to really dig deep into kind of these institutional issues. And at the time, I didn't really have the language or the framework to talk about it in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. institutional, institutional incentives and constraints. But I started to like piece this together. And interestingly enough, <laughs> during my undergrad, my summer job was a tour guide across the national parks and different places oh. in the West. So one time I would take a lot of tourists would be the Navajo Nation there in Utah and Arizona. One of the places we would go is Monument Valley, which is an absolutely beautiful place. It's a Navajo tribal park. Um, highly recommend going to anybody who hasn't gone before. I mean, it's just magical. But these tourists that I would bring to Monument Valley, they would basically be shocked by the poverty they would see on the reservation. And so people would ask me, like, why is it so poor here and I'd say 
because it's a reservation. They're like, well, why are reservations so poor? And I didn't have a good answer to give them. It's just like, oh, well, that's just kind of the way it is. And so as a curious person, that kind of left me <laughs> intellectually dissatisfied about, oh, it is the way that it is because it is the way that it is. That's no right. explanation at all. So that's where I started. That was kind of my trigger in wanting to study these things. And now that I have this economic toolkit of, you know, institutional analysis, political economy, especially from the Austrian Virginia and Bloomington approaches, um, I started really digging into kind of the causes behind why these, these places that are often rich in natural resources and these cultural resources that people want to go and see, um, why are these, why are most reservations in the United States, some of the, the poorest places in the United States, right. yeah. you know, often competing with the poorest places in the Western hemisphere kind of a thing. I know that a lot of reservations, a lot of tribal governments are doing reforms. The federal government, like the Bureau of Indian Affairs, are engaging in reforms. But still, I mean, this has been 200 plus years of, you know, a tragic history, entrenched poverty, these types of things. So some of my papers, some of my research that I've worked on, um, I argue that reservations suffer from this disproportionately high poverty do one to institutional barriers that raise transaction costs to productive entrepreneurship and then two kind of mismatches between formal institutions and informal it, institutions and this underlying cultural understandings of what constitutes good governments these cultural yeah. understandings of trust these types of things yeah well it's very illuminating work so i encourage you to keep doing it and you know there's a <clears throat> You know, some of your uh, professors from Utah State, as well as their colleagues, have made, you know, major uh, commitments to studying these issues. So, uh, which leads me to my next question, which is, uh, you know, in some sense, uh, exploring the methodological front of this. So, I, I asked you first about the theoretical frameworks, but now the actual, you know, methodological approach empirically to these things. So uh, given your master's degree at Utah State, you know, you worked with and were familiar with standard empirical, you know, uh, techniques. That also includes, you know, work that you did in graduate school here at Mason. But then you also work with more narrative techniques and you did field work. You mentioned that you were uh, you know, this kind of tour guide, but at the same time, you also were someone who did field work uh, out in, 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 on the reservations and whatnot and, and, and spent time doing that. So in your mind, how do you negotiate the strengths and weaknesses between these different empirical strategies of doing research in political economy? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So I definitely think Adam Smith had something right when he talked about specialization and division of labor. So <laughs> I found that my comparative advantage lies with the narrative techniques and the field work. Um, but there are a lot of scholars that I, I admire who are working in on Native American issues right now, like Terry Anderson, Brian Leonard, Dominic Parker, and they've done and are doing amazing work on Native American issues. Um, you know, a lot of the work they use is standard empirical techniques. They also use um, a very property rights approach, a very Coasean approach yeah. to Native American issues. And so my dissertation, some of my ongoing work tries to build off of their work. 
And I've been trying to kind of supplement their work with the Austrian Virginia Bloomington perspectives and with this kind of uh, cultural economy, narrative te techniques, field work stuff to kind of show a bigger picture. So I guess in the biggest sense, both qualitative and quantitative methods are necessary for understanding these complex social phenomena that we wanna understand. We need both methods, um, the qualitative and the quantitative, but we also need to remember the importance of division of labor and specialization. Yeah. So I'm glad that other people are wizards with Stata or R or Python or you know all different types of those types of things. And I'm glad that I've had experience doing field work where I get to interview people on the ground to really see how people on the ground are interpreting the barriers they face. So yeah, I did some field work up on some reservations in Montana about a, a year and a half ago, a couple months before the <laughs> pandemic started. But um, that was such an eye-opening experience because there's only so much you can learn from books. Like I would read all these things and it's like, oh yeah, these appear to be huge institutional barriers to entrepreneurship. And so, you know, written a few papers on that, like these, what seem to be these formal barriers, but then talking to people on the ground, some things that I thought were barriers were barriers, but they just weren't so big. And some things that I thought were kind of these minor roadblocks happen to be some of the biggest, you know, the biggest barriers to entrepreneurship and enterprise and these type of things. So it was, it's really fascinating to see on the ground what people think and say to hear, you know, like we were talking about before, um, kind of, you know, trust and distrust with government mm -hmm. in different groups and for different reasons. Yeah, there's still talking to a lot of these people, it's just still a lot of embedded distrust with federal officials. And I think historically that's for good reasons, you know, for legitimate reasons. But how do we, you know, how do we move forward? How do we help people get out of this kind of entrenched poverty? How do we engage in institutional reforms that actually make it easier for economic development to take place? Um, that's kind of hard when you have this background of entrenched, entrenched distrust. Yeah. Uh, I want to come back to that very, you know, I, I think that's a very uh, poignant observation uh, at, a, at an analytical theoretical level that we have to talk about. But I want to just ask a follow-up question a little bit about methodology, empirical strategy by that. When, when we did the Katrina project, uh, we very much focused on this notion of what we call triangulation, right? We were trying to triangulate uh, you know, the empirical strategies so that you could hone in and, and get at that. Uh, now, the, the strategy that ended up by being the most uh, fruitful, that is, it, it generated more dissertations, more research papers and whatnot, happened to be the more cultural economy kind of aspect of that program. But there was a, a standard, you know, political economy, uh, empirical strategy that was headed up by Russ Sobel, and then there was supposed to be a kind of more market focused commercial society entrepreneurship angle that was, you know, uh, uh, focused by some others. And I, you know, I was a PI on that project. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because of learning from Lynn Ostrom. So Lynn Ostrom had this idea of triangulation, you know, so one of my favorite papers of hers is a paper that's in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science 
in which he talks about uh, field work, uh, using uh, satellite imagery, okay? This is to study forestry, pattern of, of resource use in forestry. So field work, you know, the, the satellite imagery, and then laboratory experiments, you know, like experimental economics to see whether or not the game that she thought she was inferring out of the uh, field work was in fact had the equilibrium strategies, you know, that you would see in the in the in the lab, and that that would map with you know what was going on with the forestry research. And so her argument was is that we engage in multiple uh, methods methodology, but none of us can be a master of all the methods. So instead, what we have to do is specialize and exchange. Exactly what you were just talking about. So. And you've pursued that and you've had these insights. And, and, and But one of the things I think has always been interesting is how the reception that different people have of the different methods. So people that practice quantitative methodologies oftentimes poo-poo qualitative research that's given to them, N equals one, you know, blah, blah, all these kind of various different things. So it, it, there's, a, there's a communication barrier that's involved in multiple methods methodology, but then there's also barriers that you you face yourself in trying to do qualitative research. So I guess this is I wanted to just ask you a little bit about those two challenges. One, the challenge as a researcher yourself to designing and getting the most out of a field study, right? Doing field work, what goes into doing that, what goes on in your head, you know, all these kind of things. And what are the challenges you face? And then what are your challenges of communicating that to a group of economists when you come back from the field and you say, look, I learned this and, and you try to share it with them. And they're like, eh, you know, uh, you know, N equals one, that sounds like a journalist or something like that. How do you then communicate with them about the power of the approach? Yeah, and if it's an unfair and if it's an unfair question, you know, just we'll move on. But no, I just no, no, no. fascinated by this this issue. Yeah, that was that was fascinating. So before I went and did my field work and it was my. So, yeah, this thing I did about a year and a half ago, a little more than a year and a half ago, um, was my first foray into field work personally. And so that was also a very steep learning curve. Yeah, yeah. So beforehand, I talked to several people, especially several of our colleagues who had done field work, especially with the Katrina project, the Superstorm Sandy project, right. to really get a sense of what it's like. Now, it was a bit more challenging because I was trying to get kind of my foot in the door with a few people to kind of, you know, branch out and talk to more people. So I actually started with talking to Terry Anderson. It's like, hey, do you have some contacts on any of these reservations? And he did, so he put me in contact with one person and I tried to contact more and more. And so when I actually got there, it was, I had a few people lined up to talk to, but I think the difference between say the Katrina project or the Sandy project is these projects took place in the cities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was in the middle of nowhere in Montana, very, very rural. And so that was difficult in just like, in the span of a week, between these two reservations in Montana, I think I drove close to a thousand miles just because every day I would have to drive, you know, yeah. oh, 50, 50 miles to this town that I have to drive 30 miles to that town kind of a thing. And so, but it, I yeah. mean, that was very- That, is, di that is different. Right? Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I did my set of interviews in Moscow, 
I, uh, you know, I was at the Academy of Science and I was in right down there and, and I, you know, I was at this one institute and then I would like someone would take me and I'd go five minutes away and then I'd be with another interview. So it was a total different story than like what you're talking about, right? I mean, yeah. And so I think I underestimated how difficult that part would be, like actually, right. you know, finding willing people to talk. And another challenge there was to, um, there's kind of this cultural underlying thing of kind of a mild distrust of outsiders. Sure. And so I really had to, I mean, be especially personable and really explain what I was trying to do. Like I'm really trying to like ask people on the ground, like open up. What, what is it that it is making it so difficult to engage in like entrepreneurship, private enterprise, these things like, you know, I, I got a lot of um, like, it's like, you know, there's only so much that book learning can teach you. And so I'm trying to learn from the expert. So I really tried to say, you're the expert here on your life. And I'm just trying to understand what your life is like. Right. And so um, yeah. that That's was helpful. Yeah, I um, actually those, the, 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 your point about the generalized distrust also is linked up with the methodological barrier as well. Because so for example, that was one of the big things in, in with Katrina as well is, um, you know, the stories that people in, say, the Ninth Ward tell about their own history might actually be different than the real history, but it's the story that they've all believed and learned. And, and, and so, you know, who, who are we to tell them what their story is, right? I mean, they have, you know, their own story about what happened in 1926 or whatever. And, you know, they have a long and troubled history and, and difficulty. And so I guess, I, I guess as you've thought through this with regard to Native Americans, how sticky is path dependency? Like, at, 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 you know, so, for example, tragedies that were done to great-grandparents, are they tragedies that stick for the great-grandchild? Because in many ways, it seems they do. But in other ways, it seems like maybe unless the institutions are staying and continuing the barrier, people should be able to move on, but they don't. And I think this issue of expectational reset is going to be a major issue that we're facing in the post-COVID world in general, and a, but a microcosm is in the troubled past that have been experienced by Native Americans, by African Americans in this country, and the expectational reset of how do you play a game that's perceived to be fair when you believe that the game has been rigged against you all along, right? So what did you learn about that? Yeah, so it was fascinating to talk to people. I talked to people who both, they work in kind of the, the tribal or federal government on the reservation. I talked to entrepreneurs on the reservation um, or people who work in some private businesses on these different reservations. And kind of my takeaway so far is that, you know, path dependence is a real thing. Like culturally there's, I don't know what the best word is, so much baggage that's so hard to shed that it's there. So you combine kind of that historical cultural context with these institutions that haven't really caught up, like the actual formal institutions. Right. Um, 
And so the combination of those two things, I think are just so difficult to overcome. It was interesting. I talked to a lot of people and there was one thing that, uh, well, there's a couple of things that came up. Um, one is this idea of crabs in a bucket. <laughs> people brought up this kind of metaphor multiple times is, you know, if you try with your own, you know, gumption, you're trying to get out of poverty, other people will yank you down. Just kind of like the old adage of you put a bunch of crabs in a bucket, one crab tries to escape and the other crabs will yank it back into the bucket right. kind of a thing. Yeah. And so there's often this kind of cultural pressure to conform. There's also a, uh, a term that I heard that <laughs> I was actually very surprised when I heard it, which was, I guess, uh, I guess it's a kind of slur that people call you. It's an apple. They would call people apples. You're red on the outside but white on the inside and that's like it's not a good thing to be called and yeah. so yeah. and so you would see these things of people you know it's don't try to be something that you're not and often that would be like people who want to be entrepreneurial are seen as these people who aren't being you know authentically authentic. you know yeah. authentically native american kind of thing and so i think the kind of cultural now not that it's widespread uh, the people i talked to said not everybody thinks this but it's pervasive enough that there is kind of tension within their communities mm -hmm. yeah i mean this is uh, when if you go and look at similar studies that were done when the soviet union collapsed and the russian economy was going through transition and opening up to entrepreneurship um, in certain parts of Russia, you would hear stories of their version of the crabs in a bucket story, you know, and, and that that would come about. And, and uh, you know, I guess, you know, this is an issue that David Harper um, tries to address to some extent in his little uh, monograph and then a, a, a book that he did in development economics. But the monograph is called The Main Springs of Progress in which he tries to look at a version of uh, you know, social psychology that individuals have about their span of control and what they can do. I guess it, it's, it would line up with Doug North's work on mental models, like what mental models people have. And so going back to your earlier discussion of economic development, political economy, cultural economy, do you see that concept of mental models or the role of ideas and ideations, like what power do those ideas have in maybe overcoming or or perpetuating these difficulties, beliefs, ideas, ideologies, basically in general that are shared, folk wisdoms. Yeah, there. I mean, that is that's something definitely that I have seen and continue to see a lot is the role of mental models basically shapes everything. So like, for example, um, one of the biggest formal institutional barriers on reservations, at least in my summation of things, is this thing called the, the land trust. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't have time to explain the whole history of the past 200 years of Native American um, policy, but basically today, the land, a lot of individual Native Americans own land, but the title to the land is held in trust by the federal government. And so if you want to sell your land, rent your land, these type of things, you have to get permission from the Bureau of Indian Affairs to do these things. And that, I mean, it's, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is often, you know, understaffed, 
you know, short supply, these types of things. And so it can take sometimes years to get permissions to do this. And since the title is held by the federal government, you have to use, um, like you often have to go through like the federal environmental laws, like NEPA, these archeological things, if you wanna like build a house on a piece of land. So it can just be these huge barriers, but even though a lot of Native Americans recognize that these barriers exist, there's this kind of mental model that people have that we've already lost most of our land. We don't wanna lose any more. And so the federal land trust is often very popular for with it with Native Americans, even though nearly all the people that I've talked to recognize it as a huge barrier and a huge cost. For a lot of people, that huge cost is worth it because you know reservations have been whittled down. So much of the historical homelands have been taken away, and so it's kind of the reservations are these last vestiges of what used to be these historical homelands. And so you don't they a lot of the people I talk to they don't want to lose it, and so it's like. This is one way that even though this is a huge, costly, inefficient way to keep, quote unquote, Indian land in Indian hands, it, you know, a lot of people yeah. want to keep well, it that way. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, there's so much to learn. Um, as you know, Rachel Coyne, uh, Chris Coyne's wife, she did work on, on, on uh, Native American reservations as well. Um, very good paper that she has in the independent review, I think, uh, on that. Um, all right. So besides Native American lands, you've also written on conservation of endangered species and, uh, and basically from a property rights and market process perspectives. Uh, you know, so when you, and I, I don't know if this is accurate, but I think that you, didn't you teach environmental economics or? Yeah, I've taught a few. Yeah and, so, yeah, and so, you know, what do you think are the biggest uh, challenges, again, to a 17-year-old Jordan, 18-year-old uh, Jordan, intellectual, in communicating with someone like yourself who cares passionately about uh, people and the land and what did you say before, you know, where are the people and the places that people live and, and whatnot, um, and uh, how can you have a productive dialogue with them bringing these kind of ideas about the role of, of property and prices and profit and loss to handling these big issues associated with the environment, with people that are trapped in poverty and, and all these things. What, what do you find in communicating in the Think about it this way, communicating with your students, with your peers, and with the policy audience. Like if we divide it into those three, yeah. you know, how would you go about addressing those? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I guess talking about environmental issues and conservation is a really tough subject to talk about because it's a highly emotional issue. Um, and at least... I guess maybe first I'll start with students. Well, I guess the same really applies to, you know, students, peers, and the policy audience is really focusing on the rhetoric I use is gonna be very important for all three of those groups, students, peers, and policy. And the rhetoric is gonna change a little bit depending on the audience that you're talking to. But I guess I'll start with students first. When I was teaching this environmental economics class, uh, most of my students in these two separate classes that I taught, almost all of them were freshmen and nearly all of them were 
environmental and sustainability studies majors. So just like I went into geography with, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, preconceived notions, a lot of heart, a lot of feelings, like I really care about the environment. I want to learn more about it. I want to save it kind of a thing. And so that's what I went into. And so I wanted to first show that I normatively care about conservation. Like I do personally think this is a good, important thing. Um, I think by showing conservation-minded people that, you know, I'm quote unquote on their side, that we can have a productive conservation or a, a pr productive conversation about conservation. And so if my audience and I generally agree on the ends, then we can discuss the means to achieve those ends. And I think that's where the productive conversation comes in is we can really dissect the different sets of means that we have. So any set of means that we choose is gonna have strengths and weaknesses. There's always gonna be trade-offs, you know? And so the discussion can become one of economic analysis over means than having a fight over, you know, the normative ends that we're talking about. And so, um, especially with students, you know, younger students like freshmen, one rhetorical um, device that I found to be helpful is kind of using concrete if then statements. Mm -hmm. So like, if we're talking about like, if our goal is to increase the population of a particular endangered species, then what course of action can we take? And if we take a specific course of action, then what are the likely unintended consequences going to be? What are, you know, what are the incentives and constraints of that specific course of action going to create? And so thinking through that analytically, I think was very helpful. And so at least in my class, we never really got into, you know, big emotional discussions. It's like, okay, let's agree that say climate change is a problem. We're, let's just take that as a given for now. And then it's going to say, okay, what are the different institutional configurations that we can think about that are best addressed to doing that? And that's kind of where I brought in the idea of Eleanor Ostrom and some of her latest papers, you know, 2009 to kind of that era, talking about polycentricity and polycentric arrangements in combating climate change. Yeah, yeah. Like, so that's going to be really important. It's like, okay, Take that as a given. Let's talk about the different means to get there. And so I found that to be helpful. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, we all try to do that. I mean, but I guess that, uh, you know, economists in general, outside of the people like Terry Anderson and, and, and whatnot, have a reputation for uh, being callous towards the environment and callous towards the poor and I think this goes back to the question I asked you about the teaching of economics, because I think that's a, a misunderstanding of what economics teaches. And so it's, it's a mystery to me how economists have, have been stuck with that, that characterization of themselves, right? Um, and, uh, and I guess we all have a lot of work to do to sort of you know, fix that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of actually the first day that I opened up teaching these environmental economics classes, I would show pictures of myself, like climbing mountains in Yosemite, climbing mountains in Colorado okay. Rockies, climbing mountains in Yellowstone, these type of places. Like I am really invested in yes. environmental stuff. Like, yeah. but I also happen to have a PhD in 
economics. economics. And then I can, <laughs> I can combine the two and we can think about these things that I'm really passionate about, I'm really passionate about species conservation, land conservation. I'm also really passionate about economics. These two things can go together and we can, you know, I don't think they have to be diametrically opposed in any sort of way. Deirdre McCloskey has a, has a book which is called How to Be an Economist and a Human. <laughs> it's, it's or something like that. It's very, it's very, uh, very awesome. Um, all right. Uh, so economic sociology, this is the subtext of, of all of these conversations. Um, you know, economic sociology at George Mason, we're a very rare PhD program in economics that offers this as a field. We have several people practicing in that area. Uh, you know, Wagner, our colleague Richard Wagner and his whole notion of fiscal sociology and entangled political economy. Uh, Pete Leeson and the rational choice model. Um, you know, Virgil Store and and uh, and the issue of, of cultural economy. Um, you know, more in generally. You know, uh, one way to understand economic sociology is that there's in, in a Weberian strand, there is a role for pure theory of economic decision making. And then there is a role for economic history. Uh, right. And then in between the two of those is a set of institutionally contingent theoretical constructs that are associated with the law, with the polity, with society, which includes religion um, and, and whatnot. And so this is, so there's, 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 you know, these various different ways and then bites of it from, you know, Wagner or Leeson or Storr or whatever. And, you know, you've been exposed to all of these and then some uh, positions and you're a youngster, you know, less than 10 years out from your PhD, uh, you know, trying to build your research portfolio and whatnot. And, you know, how do you see yourself primarily contributing to and emphasizing the different aspects of the work? I mean, we've already heard it somewhat here, but, you know, your work talks about entangled political economy, right? Your work talks about rational decision-making, choices on the margin, as you put it, choices and constraints. Right. You know, and you're talking you're and you talk about mental models and frames of reference and, you know, interpretive schemas and all these things like that. So do you see a tension at all between these projects or a healthy tension? Not not a necessarily a negative tension, but a healthy tension. Like there might be a healthy tension between Buchanan and Tulloch, you know, where Tulloch is is is, you know, emphasizing, maximizing all the way through and Buchanan is talking about what should economists do and we're beyond maximization, you know, kind of idea, but the, the, the play between the two of them produced the calculus of consent, right? Um, and so a, a healthy tension, a tension that you feel needs to be resolved or, or you know, anyway, I'm talking too much, but I, I wanna hear what you have to say about all that. Yeah, I mean, I guess in everything, there's a healthy tension, I guess, over the past, like the course of my PhD program, and now, you know, working on my own research, I guess I've come to the realization that literally everything that we study is way more complicated than we think it is. And so intellectual humility is a huge part of this, like, realizing that even the smartest of people 
only know a sliver of the things that we really need to know. And so any social phenomenon is going to be so incredibly complex that it's going to be hard to, for any human mind to digest a very Hayekian point, right? Like there's only so much that the human mind can actually comprehend. And so to understand any particular social phenomenon, I think the devil's always in the details. Sometimes the devil's in the institutional details, those like hardcore, you know, incentives and constraints of the formal institutions that might be more of a, you know, pure rational choice kind of a thing. Or sometimes the devil's in the cultural details. And that might be more of the Weberian type of thing or like, you know, maybe more like Virgil Storr's work. And so I think to understand these complex social phenomena depends on the question you're asking, depends on what you want to put your focus on. But yeah, you really have to, at least, I guess I've come to the realization that devil's always in the details, just depends on what details you happen to be focusing on at any given point in time. And there's going to be tensions in everything, just like I think in any social phenomenon, there's internal contradictions to that. So of course, there's going to be tension. Something's contradictory, there's going to be tension. Yeah, no, that's a, I mean, I think that, that it's, uh, the reason why I bring it up is I, 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 I want to, I think one of the main things about our research group, at least, and this is self-serving, so I, you know, uh, am more than willing to admit that. Um, but I think one, the first thing is, is that we follow as um, exemplars people that are lifelong learners. They had, if you think about people like Hayek and Buchanan and Ostrom, they had long careers in which they were constantly learning new things. They didn't just come up with an idea when they were 25 years old and then stay with it the whole time. They were taking different bites of the apple because they were unsatisfied in their intellectual quest uh, over their careers. And so we take that idea of lifelong learning very seriously and it's an invitation to inquiry and it's about unleashing your curiosity in understanding the world. And so as a result, you wouldn't just want to have one singular approach that would close off all the other ones. You, you need to learn because you're, you know, the most important words that you'll ever utter is, I don't know, <laughs> because that's the beginning of figuring out. I mean, you know, I, R Richard Feynman is, is, you know, in some sense, the pinnacle of science and when applied to the social science, scientism. But I get a lot of inspiration a lot of times from Feynman's attitude about things. And one of his, one of his uh, great attitudes was, I would rather ask a question that can't be answered than provide an answer that can't be questioned. And I think that's a very, very fundamental insight, which I hope our environment continues to offer to you know, young minds when they decide to want to pursue economics as a vocation and that they come here and they think about it in those terms. So I appreciate your, your answer and your example. So uh, that's great. Um, bonus question. <laughs> okay. All right. Bonus question. Uh, the, the, I, don't, I'm not, I don't do the Tyler Cowen thing, underrated, overrated. So he's, he, I just ask a straight up question, which is, you know, what keeps you up at night? Like what, 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 
current project are you working on or what educational venture are you engaged in that, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, you wake up and you want to jot notes down, you know, because, you know, I want to, I want to get this right or whatever. What, what are you currently getting most jazzed up about and share that a little bit? And you yeah, got a so lot of irons in the fire. I, I do have a lot of irons in the fire right now. So I feel like I uh, probably bit off more than can chew with a lot of these projects I'm working on. But uh, one of my, I guess the project I'm most excited about now is I'm working on a book right now with our colleague Stephanie Hapley on kind of the political economy of bureaucracy. So, I mean, bureaucracy basically touches every aspect of our life. Uh, you know, I, my personal research is really dug deep into kind of, you know, the federal bureaucracies for Native Americans, like the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Indian Health Service, and then also kind of more environmental ones like the EPA or the Fish and Wildlife Service, these type of things. But, you know, federal bureaucracy, state bureaucracy, local ones, they're just so pervasive everywhere. And so what Stephanie and I are trying to do is we really want to show explicitly how the Austrian, Virginia, and Bloomington's perspectives complement each other so we can better understand the workings of government bureaucracy and public administration. So I know you have a fairly recent book um, with some of our colleagues colleagues like Paul Alajika and stuff on public administration. And so we're trying to um, attack it from a slightly different angle. And um, since I'm kind of a latecomer to the political economy games, there's two kind of two main concepts that have changed my worldview, just the idea of knowledge problems and incentive problems. And so we're really trying to highlight in this book, the knowledge problems and the incentive problems that are inherent in government bureaucracy and how you know, the Austrian school really highlighted the knowledge problems, but they mentioned the incentive problems and on the public choice side. They really highlighted the incentive problems, but they also acknowledged the knowledge problems. Right. And how do we put this into one cohesive overview of, you know, bureaucracy? Well, you're, uh, I mean, both you and Stephanie are perfect people for that. One of which is, you know, Stephanie herself worked in some of these bureaucracies, you have experience in DC as well as being studying these things. And then, you know, your, your professor, Randy Simmons, his book on public choice with Bill Mitchell has one of the first books that merged public choice and the Austrian arguments together, having to do with planning um, in that book. And then of course, Chris Coyne, uh, you know, in doing bad by doing good. This is a centerpiece of what he does. So I'm looking forward to uh, reading that work and, and discussing and, and uh, debating uh, with you guys the fine points on it, because I'm sure it's going to be, um, you know, a great addition to the literature. So uh, excited about that. Well, anyway, Jordan, thank you very much for having uh, this conversation with me today and taking time out from your very, very busy schedule as we're one week away from the beginning of the semester and all the programming and everything else that goes with that. So I greatly appreciate you taking the time to do that. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. 
We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.